My name is Kimberly Wirtz. I'm an attorney with Baltimore Slow out of Norman, Oklahoma. Thank you much for coming back and joining the program here talking about some water issues, some water topics, if you will, when it comes to the oil and gas world. And uh, since we last spoke uh, about a year ago about the Interstate Oil and Gas Commission meeting and, and speaking that you did, um, your world's advanced a little bit. Sounds like you got some, some new endeavors on your horizon. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yes, I recently found out that um, the governor of Oklahoma had appointed me to be an Oklahoma delegate to the IOGCC, and so that's very exciting. I'm on a couple of different committees now, and I'm very excited to hopefully use that platform to continue my water research and continue to just kind of learn and understand what different states face when, when they're dealing with produced water. What's kind of some of the biggest issues going on in water right now? You know, I think... Just generally speaking, there's a kind of an overall misconception that with, with water, at least when it comes to industry water, that it can really be kind of handled and managed in um, like a, a one-size-fits-all approach. And I think when you really dig into things, you see that that's maybe not always the case. Um, you know, the different states have different laws. They have different regulations. And so you have to kind of balance that on a legal landscape, but then you also have to dive in a little bit deeper. And if you're looking at the basins and the different formations, you also understand that each of those carries its own differences or variances with water use and management. So I think that's, you know, a really big issue right now is understanding that, hey, what's what's working in, you know, the Delaware in Texas might not work for the scoop and the stack in Oklahoma. But what's working in the Delaware for Texas may work for the Delaware in New Mexico. So I think there's a, a little bit of overlap, and a lot of people think, well, you know, let's get out there and let's just tackle this water problem. But when you dive really deep and you start really looking at what the issues are, you kind of have to give a, a little extra attention to what the different, um, you know, environment creates for you. Up where in, in my neck of the woods in the Bach in North Dakota, you know, we've got, uh, we, we, we have international waters. So, I mean, that's right. just, that's a whole other layer there. Um, right. Talk to me a little bit about some of the issues that, that come up with this because, you know, you got interstate with water barriers and things along those lines. You know, I mean, just take the right. um, Hoover Dam, Lake Mead, if you will. You know, I, I think it's, most of it's in Nevada, but I think California has first dibs to that water, Arizona second, and then Nevada third. I, I don't know the pecking order, but I know that the, it, it's something like that. So it becomes very problematic and, and issues with water when it, it cross state lines under water, underground, if you will. Right. I think you've seen, you've seen that kind of historically happening between Texas and New Mexico. And, you know, they're divided by the Rio which is, you know, an apportioned river that also has international obligations. So that's two states that have to deal with that, that constraint. I think in the past we have seen a lot of struggle when it comes to water, but as of recent, um, you know, Texas and New Mexico both have passed legislation, different um, house bills. Um, New Mexico passed the Produce Water Act. And when you take those two sets of laws and kind of lay them next to each other, they're extremely complementary. So I think these two states, acting on behalf of their own people, 
they really helped um, not only within the state lines, but also across the state lines, making, I think, the industry use of water across the, that Texas line to the New Mexico line and vice versa much more compatible, um, much more cooperative and unified. What exactly are you going to try to bring into your new position at the IOGCC or is it a platform or kind of a what how whatever the word is that you're going to you know your your thrust or your mission that you're going to bring in there what types of things are you looking to do I am a firm believer that you know with water I know with oil and gas in the oil and gas industry can be extremely competitive um, with water, it seems to be more of a cooperative learning environment. One of the main things I was excited about when I found out that I would be on the IOGC was the cooperative learning environment that they provide, that platform for all states to come forward and really air out their, you know, their grievances and their issues, but also share their successes and what's working in different areas. So I am, I want, I, I can't wait to learn and, and absorb all there is out there, but also I want to also drive home this idea that maybe one size fits all is not the right approach. But if we can identify what the issues are, we can all learn from each other to better manage this resource. And where's the resource these days, the state of the water when it comes to the, specifically the oil and gas industry? I don't know how in tune you are on it, but you're on the speaking circuit and you're getting appointments by governors. So I'll, I'll ask it because <laughs> you're, you're, you're a little bit more informed than the average bear, but... I, you know, over the past three, five years, I've read different things to where the amount of water that they believe that's going to be needed for a lot of these shale plays is, was upwards of 20 times what they originally thought. Well, now we've looked at some of the technology and innovation with reusing and recycling and, and everything along those lines. So I, I never know where any of these study numbers are still valid and not and some of these other things. you got to stay up on it like day to day. It's like the stock market. Um, Definitely. Where, 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 where are you at with your knowledge when it comes to that with the amount of water that's going to be needed? Are there some people that are, are more advanced in the recycling and the reusing? I don't know how involved you are on that type of the business, yeah. but go ahead. Well, you know, the uh, Permian wells were expected to reach, I think it was the, the number was 5.4 million barrels per day by 2023. That's the number that gets kicked out and kicked around a lot. What we normally do as water attorneys is we take that production number and we multiply it by five to give us a rough estimate of the amount of water that's going to need to be managed during and post-drilling. And so when we break that down, I think the Railroad Commission today released a number that 100 million barrels of crude in Texas was produced in just July of 2019. That 100 million barrels of crude being produced in July, approximately produced 500 million barrels of water that needs to be managed. Now, where the struggle comes with from those volumes is it doesn't, again, one size fit all doesn't really work here. Some people need to pipe it, but they've got to be able to have that infrastructure to do so. So that's a struggle. Some will need to truck it, 
But that's a whole nother struggle because of the cost of trucking and the surface damage that comes involved. Some will try to dispose, and we all know that that causes another level of, you know, transactional and operational constraints. So I think everyone, the, the big point is we are going to be dealing with a very large volume of water. It's just figuring out what works for the individual entities. What type of uh, business do you do? terms of, you know, we're talking about your appointments and some of the trends that are going on, but, you know, you, you obviously make money somehow. So how, how is it that you make money in the uh, water and oil and gas world? Well, I am an energy attorney, and so I'm not limited to just water. I do work with um, landowners. I also do title examination, both mineral and surface. So pretty much if it, if it involves land, I've, I try to get my hands in it. Um, I do a lot of, for water work, I do a lot of groundwater leases. We do a lot of um, groundwater negotiations with the Oklahoma Corporation Commission or the Texas Railroad Commission or other entities that we have to go through to get water use. And then I've also tried to really get involved recently with Oklahoma Water Resource Board. They are launched, a, it's called, I think, Water for 2060, and it's a produced water study group. And so I'm very interested to get involved in that. But for the most part, it's a lot of transactional work, a little bit of litigation, but just about if it, you know, if it touches the land, I would like to get my hands on it. <laughs> sure. And are there water rights? separate than mineral rights and all that? I guess I'm not familiar with Texas, the layering of that. Well, it, it, in Texas, um, the water right is, is attached to the surface estate, which okay. is different from, you know, some of the other resources you find in the ground. So it's definitely not a part of the mineral estate. So that's where you see kind of an overlap in practice. Sometimes you'll be talking to a, a mineral owner or a leasehold owner that needs water. Other times you'll be talking to a landowner that wants to sell that water to that operator or or that mineral owner. So that it's a very interesting overlap in Texas. And most states still hold that, you know, the water right or the water stick in the bundle of property rights belongs to the surface estate. So that's where you get this fun mix of, you know, the mineral estate uh, working with the surface estate and vice versa. I'll tell you, there's a number of hot button issues when it comes to the, the minerals right now. And right. the majority of them, the state has seems to be involved in the middle of their kerfuffle somehow. But that's that's for a different program. But um, like just for example, in North Dakota, one of the issues that keeps coming up every now and then is flaring in in north dakota the um the mineral owners don't get paid for that and right. and you know in other states I, I think they might it's kind of a it depends on type of a thing but you could see where that is that would be a really controversial and, and hot button issue and and everything along those lines and then you've got um uh, what was the one I was seeing the other day in, in Maryland? It's really going on with uh, exploration companies who own mineral rights. They can kind of trump or can have the victory over the people who own the land rights. So you've got companies coming right. in and, and just drilling on somebody's land, just looking for minerals. And they're like, um, <laughs> we, we live here and farm here, man. <laughs> so. and, and that's the problem. 
practice in Texas. I mean, Texas holds the mineral estate is the dominant estate. It will trump the surface estate unless you can, you know, prove a certain set of, you know, exceptions or things of that nature. So that's very, that's another common um, argument you see in Texas. As to the flaring, I can tell you, I've, I know I've told you before, I'm kind of a Tex homan, um, born and raised in Texas, but I practice and have spent a lot of my adult life here in Oklahoma. In Texas, flaring is very common. Um, I know some property owners that joke that they have uh, 24-7 night lights outside because they flare all the time and it's so bright. Well, if you cross the Red River into Oklahoma, it's a completely different landscape. You don't see flaring. The infrastructure is so much better, and it's very, flaring is very frowned upon in Oklahoma, whereas in Texas, I think it's frowned upon, but they haven't figured out the best way to address it at this time. So I think that's a very hot-button issue, and, you know, just I have a, a, a colleague that has done a ton of work on flaring, so if you ever wanted to talk to her, I would love to put you in touch with her. A- absolutely. I, In fact, we've even gone a step further. I, I'd love to know your opinion on this. You know, we're not a... We're not really a political program, but we do doc policy, and, and we'll talk about some things that would be considered politics from time to time, but the, the conversations generally don't get bombastic and sensational, and we don't have graphics and wells and bells and whistles that help, help with the uh, uh, momentum of the show. But one of the things that we've brought up, and and it's it's a difficult question, so it has to be on a high level program like this. Pat on my own back, is that? <laughs> well, it is because like when you take when you take a look and and from a sterile perspective here and say, okay, let's take a look at the uh, wind and solar energy industry. And for the last forty years, they've received subsidies, and probably over the last twenty, they've been pretty aggressive, ramped up subsidies. Now they. By their own accord, they promised that they would have affordable energy for the consumer 20 years ago. And then they promised again, you know, 40 years ago or whatever it was. And real, realistically, I, I believe the farmers were more efficient with the wind turbines, uh, with their windmills 100 years ago than we are now. And the solar industries maybe produced a camping cell phone charging battery uh, charger that's somewhat affordable for the consumer. And that's really about it. And I'm being actually kind of serious. I'm not trying to be a smart ass. I'm saying if you look at the investment and the affordability and the yada yada type thing. So that's just kind of the context of it. The question is that do, do you think we're at a time now where we should say, what if we shifted half of those subsidies that are already going to the wind and solar industry who have not even come close to the milestones that they put forth themselves as an industry. So what if we took half of that and shifted to natural gas? I bet they could solve that flaring problem in five years. I, I mean, I, I am inclined to agree with you, you know, without seeing more of the information. Um, I know that's something I've talked about before is Texas, when they were putting these new house bills forward, they put in a um, an actual water type tax incentive um, subsidy program that they thought would catch on and it would encourage recycling and reuse, and then it didn't pass. And everyone was kind of shocked, and they thought, well, you know, we we're, we're helping in all these other areas. We helped in you know wind. We're helping in solar. Why didn't we help with the water? Um, I think there's a little bit of, you know, I'm not sure what the 
politics behind all of it are as as Texas stood that day. But I do think, um, yeah, natural gas could solve a lot of problems if we um, really gave it the attention it deserved. Um, my colleague Haley Dennis, she has done extensive research on it. Oklahoma recently put a cap on the allowables for natural gas, and she was kind of did an, an analysis and a question on it. And, you know, at the end of the day, she's, you know, she sits there and says, we are set up for it. We are so close, but we're just not there. That's how I look at it, where there's so much of it and there's really so much that can be done. But at the same time, if the pipelines aren't done yet, there's there's nothing that can be done there. But I look at a lot of these these um, these these uh, crazy capitalists, these guys that are sleeping on the well site and checking monitors every hour away from their families. And these guys have invested a lot of their resources, time and energy and family time to solve the problem of flaring. And then when you really trickle it down, you know, most of these energy companies, they're getting taxed more than anybody. And they're making sure that the local churches have their bake sales taken care of and the local ball games, uh, uh, the kids have uniforms and everything else. At the end of the day, sometimes research and development, there's just not money there for it. And that's why I thought maybe the subsidies would help some of these, these honestly, these wildcat independent guys. I mean, they're really, you know, they're not getting much help from the government. They're not getting much help from uh, the energy companies because the energy companies are just tapped and they need sure things. You know, they, at the, they're at the point. Right. Yeah. I mean, they got shareholders they got to adhere to. And, yeah, they want to work with certainties. Yeah, 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 right. Exactly. And so I, I get it. I get all points, you know, I, I get everybody's point, but at the same time, I'm looking at it like there's a lot of uh, flaring going on. And here's the one part of it that I think that really would just be a slam dunk to shift those subsidies. Because what we talked about earlier is the majority of these mineral right owners don't get paid on that flared gas. Imagine if those guys got paid. Now your local hardware hanks would get a little bit of an economic surplus. You know what I mean by that? Yes, it would trickle out. Yeah. So anyway, I anyway, that's one of the pontification questions we have going on at the crude life. What if we shifted just half of the subsidies? You know, I, I want the bloop 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 stuff to happen. But anyway, that's um. So yeah, that's 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 our. Part of that lesson today. So, getting back to water, uh, are you you got any upcoming uh, speaking gigs or presentations that you're going to be doing here in the near future? Uh, yes, actually, I will be presenting at the Eugene Kuntz Conference in Oklahoma City on November first, and that is a kind of a homegrown Oklahoma oil and gas conference that you know really addresses statewide issues, and I'm, I'm pretty excited about. And then in November 12th, I have to go down to Houston. I'll be at the American Water Summit down there. I am going to um, sit at a round table and we'll be discussing, you know, financing for the future of the water midstream. And it's a great program put on uh, by American Water Summit. So I'm excited to do that. And then I think I'll just take a break and enjoy some uh, holiday time with my kids after that one. That sounds like a good time. Good- time there to take some holiday time but you do have a few speaking gigs and a few um topics i guess that that you're going to be talking about for people should i guess be preparing for 2020 huh 
Yes, I think so, especially with the new, um, like I said, these new regulations and new laws that are coming out um, out of Texas and New Mexico. I think it's really going to impact the landscape of how we uh, manage and, and really transact with the water resource between the two states. I'm very excited for that. So just kind of kind of wrapping up, the, I guess, a little bit on, on some of this. You know, if, if you're an energy company getting ready, you're probably preparing right now, if you haven't already, for, for 2020. Um, what, what are the th- ways of water that you think some of the people should be at least having a discussion about at the boardroom table? I definitely think you need to start talking about how you're going to transport it and what you're going to do to um, dispose. Right now, you know, Texas did also put in some pretty stringent disposal um, permitting rules in response to seismicity, very similar to what we've seen Oklahoma do. Um, I think you should be very educated and um, in tune to what all of that's going to require. And then I just, I continue to encourage a cooperation, you know, talk to, talk to the landowners, talk to the different, you know, operators around you, see what their struggles are. Um, I think with water, if we can take that unified approach, it will not only help the industry, but I do think it'll also help the resource. 